0: Thank you for sharing that today, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I believe there is Children's Church, so if you want to make your way down there right now, and uh, everyone else, if you'd love to, to open up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 13 today, and uh, uh, I just want to make sure that this clicker thing is working. Oh yeah, okay, it's working. So, uh, Easter is uh, today, where, uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've been going through a series on Ephesians, and I thought it might be a good idea for us to stop for a while and uh, get ready for the Easter season. Easter, uh, I believe, is one of the most, or I shouldn't say one of the most, it is the most pivotal moment in human history. Amen? Amen? Amen. I didn't think I would have to argue that too hard, right? I love Easter. Easter is the most important, pivotal moment in your life. It is the reason why you're here. It's the reason why we do missions and we do summer camps and we do tribal trails. It's the reason why you live the way you did, why you chose the kind of family that you did, why you raise your kids a certain way. It is the most important thing ever in the entire part of human history and yet here's the thing if we were to compare Christmas and Easter I feel like Christmas gets more fanfare don't you right and there's nothing wrong with that I'm Mr. Christmas actually I would probably say that Daryl's Mr. Christmas right Right, Daryl is, is Mr. Christmas. He loves Christmas and I love Christmas too. Christmas in our family starts November and it ends like two weeks into January. I'm the last one to take down the Christmas lights in our house. That's why our power bill is so expensive. So but the idea is, is like here, here's what I'm here's what I'm I'm trying to say by that is, is that Christmas might get the most fanfare, but I actually think that Christmas exists to make sure that Easter happens, okay? Everything about Christmas is to fulfill and make sure that the events that lead up, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, happens, and it is the most important thing for any of us to believe. And yet, sometimes, I don't think we give it the the, the uh, respect that it kind of deserves. So, uh... For example, Christmas is a season, it goes on for, you know, pretty much from November all the way to January, Easter is a weekend. And so what I want to do today is is for for the next few weeks leading up to Easter, I want to make sure that our hearts are ready to celebrate Easter and understand how important it is. And so to do that, we are going to look at the last week of Jesus' life for the next little while. And I'm basically saying, it, uh, and, and, and I basically want to look at, we're going to look at five different stories that occurred during the last week of Jesus' life. And the whole point, and, and all of them, that I want you to get ready for the Easter season simply is this, is I want you to discover why Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than that dream that you're pursuing. He's better than the religiousness. He's better than the judgmentalism or the corruption. He's better than any kind of relationship that you can pursue. He's better than the best dream. He's wiser than the most wisest person. He's more eloquent than any kind of, than the best kind of literature. I want you to understand and hear that Jesus is better. So we're going to pick stories that happened in the last week of Jesus' life to show that. And today... What we're going to do is we're going to look at one of my favorite stories, Jesus in the temple, okay? And I've always wanted to talk about this one. I particularly wanted to talk about this one during COVID, but we didn't really match. And the reason was is because this story of Jesus in the temple, a lot of people used to do a lot of riot stuff. So, you know, during the COVID, there was all those kind of riots. And there were memes on Facebook that said Jesus overturned the temple, so why can't we burn down the cities? That's not the point of the story, <laughs> okay? <clears throat> and so today, I just want to share with you uh, a little bit about the story of Jesus in the temple. You can find it in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 20, uh, 14. But just for review, okay? And, and I know that most of us. I uh, love Jesus and we grew up uh, in, Christ, uh, in church and we know all the stories of Jesus but a- as a preacher I know that there are some of us who have grown up and we've been Christians for a long time and that there are those of us who are new to Christianity and we're just checking things out and you might not know the whole story and I've got to actually preach to both of you at the same time. So today what I'm going to do is just do a quick little review Everything about who we are as a church is about Jesus, okay? It's Jesus in the morning, Jesus in the afternoon, Jesus in our workday. It's always Jesus, okay? Our life centers around the life and teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just, uh, just for a recap, Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life in relative uh, obscurity, right? We, we know a little bit about what happened. We don't know a whole lot, but most of the Gospels are written in the last uh, three years of his life where he did ministry, where he did, he loved the people, he built relationships with the people, he prayed with the people, and he taught the people about God and how much God loved him. And then, during the last week of his life, his last week of life starts on a Sunday, so... Particularly, help me out, church, what is that Sunday called? We celebrate it just before Easter. Easter Sunday. Close. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus' arrival into the city of Jerusalem. Okay? And he arrived into the city with a lot of fanfare. In fact, I, I want you to stop and think about just how popular and how much of a celebrity icon Jesus would have been in a day where there's no printing press, no electricity, no radio, television, news, there's no mass media, there's no newspaper, there's no TikTok, there's nothing to spread about the, anywhere to spread the word about how famous Jesus is other than the word of mouth. So you have to be, in my mind, a special kind of famous in order for everyone to spread, in order for your fame to spread from word of mouth. And Jesus was so famous that when he enters into the city, people are there's there's a huge amount of fanfare. And it takes Jesus, if you think about the distance from A and W to the town school, roughly, I don't know, three kilometers, I wanna say. Help me out here. Like that's, it took Jesus almost the entire day to ride on a donkey in that distance, right? Because there were so many people welcoming into the city and laying down their cloaks and cutting off branches to welcome him there. And so that's just the first day, that's Sunday. And then we hit Monday, okay? And Monday, Jesus goes into the temple, and this is where our text picks up. It says this in verse or uh, verse 12 all the way to 14 in chapter 21. It says this, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. You got to wonder about, you got to like picture that is, is, Did Jesus like kick someone out of a chair? Like, I'm not really sure what he did there, but it, he seemed pretty angry. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, as we open up your word today, would you uh, help me uh, uh, speak in a way that is clear and true to the text, and would your Holy Spirit convict us of where your Holy Spirit needs to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to do two simple things, and I'm just going to explain what Jesus is doing and why he's doing it, okay? But before I do that, I want to address something right out of the text that I think all of us need to know. See, my passion for us as a church is that we would become passionate about seeing the lost saved. That's why we spend all that time and all that energy on missions. And we want to see our friends know Jesus. We want to see everyone know Jesus. And here's the thing that you understand about that. If you and I want to evangelize and share our faith then you and I are going to have to realize that what winds up happening is that people are going to push back and they're going to have certain doubts and certain questions. And one of the questions that they're going to, most often are going to bring up is the reliability of the Bible. Okay? Can I trust God's word? Uh, you know, how can you believe that the Bible is God's word when you're doing, uh, when, it, when it's uh, been, uh, how can you trust, what's, what's the right word I'm trying to say here? How can you, Tell me that it hasn't been tampered with through all the thousands of years it's been there. Can you not tell me that someone has misaligned or misinterpreted even just by accident? How can I trust the 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 trustworthiness of God in the Bible? How can I trust it? It's a it's a big question. In fact, it's probably the top within the top five of the most uh, uh, the most frequent objections. Unbelievers have, or people who are searching, have towards God. How can you trust God's word without it being tampered with? And one of the reasons that they think it's tampered is because of this story. Does anyone want to take a guess as because as to why this one would make you think that the Bible is tampered is, is tampered with? Anybody? That could be one. That's not the one I'm thinking about. What's that? Daniel. What about Daniel? Okay, how accurate. That's not the one I was thinking about. It's a little more surface level on that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke place the story at the end of Jesus' life. Okay? But John places the story at the start of Jesus' ministry. Okay? So the problem is is that you have a non-Christian friend and you're sitting across the table with them and you're trying to convince them that the Bible is true. And they go, what about the inconsistency here? See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all place it here and then John here. They contradict each other, what's going on. So one of the things I want to do is I just, anytime that you that know, I come across something where someone's going to object, I just want to give you... Uh, a quick explanation as why so you so you can answer your friend in that, and there's two reasons for this that I want to give the first is this is that Jesus clears the temple twice right? or he does it multiple times now i don't really subscribe to that view, but I need you to let you know that there are a lot of preachers and a lot of academic scholars that are a lot smarter than I am that would probably say that right so I want you to hold that one. The other one is this, and this is probably where I would land, is that the Gospels place stories in order of theme before a chronological account, okay? So you need to understand something, is that when you and I read the Bible... You and I tend to read it from a North American mindset, which means that when we look at a biography or like the gospel, in a his- historical account, we expect beginning, middle, end. We expect details and all this kind of thing. But the gospels were not written like that. The gospels were written to prove a point about Jesus. So when you look at the gospel of Matthew, for instance, it's not necessarily trying to give you a step by step detailed account of everything that Jesus said or did in fact when you read John's gospel i believe it says that not jesus did more than was written in this bible or in this account if i wrote down everything that jesus did there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to contain it so we know right from scripture that they're not trying to to be like every single detailed account. But what they're doing is they're trying to prove a point about Jesus. So Matthew's gospel is trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people are looking for. Whereas John's gospel, on the other hand, is trying to prove the divinity of Christ and how he's superior. So when John places the story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry he's not necessarily saying it happened here what he's doing is saying i'm trying to show how jesus is better than the old covenant and here's a story that does it and here's a story that does it and here's a story that does it so when you read john for example and you read john chapter 2 i believe which is the story of jesus turning water into wine and the six ceremonial like uh <clears throat> the six ceremonial water basins what he's doing there he's saying like the old covenant is uh, the old covenant is gone, the new one is come, and then right after this, there's a story of Jesus cleaning the temple, and then right after that is the story of Jesus uh, uh, rebuking and making the fig tree withered, all of which are talking about how Jesus is, the new, uh, or Jesus is superior. So th- those are the two reasons that I, I could give. You can debate which one you, you feel more like, but that's the one that I would go. So, uh, so then, going back to our text... What was Jesus doing? And the simple answer to that is that Jesus was calling out stuff. Particularly, he was calling out three things. He was calling out corruption, false expectations, and he was calling the end of religions. Okay? So let me explain this uh, relatively quickly for you, and uh, so you kind of understand what is going on and why Jesus is so angry and upset. Um, in that day when Jesus is at the temple his last week was during a celebration called Passover. And Passover is a celebration that celebrates how God overthrew the Egyptians and gave the and uh, the people of Israel went free. And so what you would do is there would be a lot of animal sacrifice that would happen. Historians say that as much as 200 and 50,000 sheep and lambs were sacrificed during this week. Okay? So now I want you to think about this for a minute. Okay? This is a holiday and a season where the Jewish people would come from all over the world to celebrate Passover. And it's an era where there's no trucks, there's no gas, there's no, uh, there's no like, way to mass transport animals and so what you would have to do is if you wanted to sacrifice at the temple, not only would you have to bring your family, you would have to bring your entire livestock or all, your, all, all, the, uh, all the animals with you. Okay? And on top of that, they had to be the best. Okay? They had to be the ones without defects. Now here's the problem. The only way that you knew for sure whether or not your animals were without defect is whether or not the priest cleared it for sacrifice. So you brought the animals in, you brought them all the way over from Alberta, you're traveling across the world to go there, and you get there, and you find out that they're not worthy enough to be sacrificed. Well, what do you do? Here's what they did. is Instead of bringing their animals uh, and traveling with their own animals, what they did is the priests and the religious leaders of the time would pre-approve the animals that they would sacrifice. And so what you would do is you just come there, buy your animal at there so you didn't have to travel with it and sacrifice. Now, here's the problem, okay? There are three problems that happen. The first is this, is that when you are bringing... Jewish people from all out of the world, you have to bring all this currency from all of the world so that they had these things called money changers. So you, when you go to the temple, the first thing that you would do is you would exchange your money into a currency that the temple would accept. And here's what happened. The, God, the money changers were corrupt and it charged extremely high prices to do that. But everyone would do it because they wanted a, they wanted to please God. So... Step number one, they did that. That's problem number one. Step Problem number two is that you would take your new currency and then go to the stations and find your animal that you would like to buy so you would sacrifice. But those guys, the vendors, would charge exceedingly high prices. Okay, So that's step number two. So they're pricing people out of worshiping God. I don't know... Uh, how much you know of my story or not, but my entire family has grown up and lived in the city of Vancouver, like the core, our aunts, uncles, the whole thing. Now that everyone is older, they are spread out across BC because they are priced out. And it's sort of the same thing that is happening here, except they're not being priced out of living in a rainy city. They're being priced out of a worshiping God. So strike number one. Strike number two is this, okay? As if you recall in our series of Ephesians, I talked to you about the temple and how the temple was a building that was full of, all, it was a multi, it, was a, it had different sections to, that different people could go in. So it had the Holy of Holies that only the priests could go in once a year. And then it had something called the Place of Sacrifice where the Jews outside, only Jewish men on the outside, could look upon the sacrifice being sacrificed there, and then they had something called the Court of the Gentiles. Do you remember me telling you about this? And the Den- the Court of the Gentiles is the place where you and I would go, and that is as close as we could get to God. Okay. Now here's 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 where the rub comes in. Okay. If you have this, this idea about buying your animal sacrifice became so popular that they didn't have any room. So where do you think that they, they put all the, all the animals? They pushed all the animals and all the, all the sheep and all the pigeons into the court of the Gentiles, effectively pushing anyone who wanted to see God out of the temple. And Jesus walks into this, okay, and he's seizing this. He's seeing the corruption. He's seeing the greed. He's seeing that there's a bunch of people over here that desire to want to get close to God. And they, they can't because the people are pushing them out to make a buck. And he's getting angry at that. And so here's what Jesus does is that he gets angry. And he starts flipping tables. And he said, "This is this is... This is a place where people have come to pray and this is a, my house shall be called the house of prayer and you're, you're robbing people in order to do it. And here's what I want you to catch is that the temple is something that was supposed to be pure. It was supposed to represent it was supposed i actually I'll jump ahead of here. It's supposed to represent two things to the Jewish people and to all the world: the forgiveness of sins and God's presence among the people. But now no one can do that. They're either getting priced out of it or there's just no room. And so Jesus gets angry at that. Now here's what I want to catch you today. All right? I know that. When you come to church, you're looking for the idea that God is for you and that he loves you and that you don't need to worry, it's all love and grace, and it is all love and grace. And You need to hear that, okay? That Jesus does love you, and in fact, there is absolutely no one on this earth who is in your corner more than Jesus Christ, that he's got your back, that he's in favor of you, that he loves you, that no matter what you've done, no matter how many screw-ups you've made, or no matter how many times or mistakes that's gone on, he will always be there to love you and accept you and welcome you back. Your sins are forgotten. He just loves you. But I also need to tell you something is that sometimes he's going to walk into our lives just like he walked into the temple. And he's going to look at our lives. He's going to look at our marriages. He's going to look at our schoolwork. And he's going to call us out on stuff. But he's not calling us out because he's a big meanie. And he's being judgeful and wrathful and mean. We talked about this at Sunday school. When God may calls you out on something, it's not because he hates you or he's like, you're such a bad person. It's because he loves you. I, I talk about this, the difference between condemnation and conviction. When God points something if you've come to the place in your life where you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay? So when you as a Christian feel condemnation and feel guilt and shame, you need to understand something that is that is not the Holy Spirit. I would actually believe that that's the accuser of brethren. Satan himself who's saying you're nothing, you're messed up. You might as well give it out. But there is a difference between condemnation and conviction. And conviction often speaks in the same area, but it's this—it's it's this washing, it's this freeing, it's saying I need—I'm concerned about this area, and I'm going to speak life into you, and I need you to see that it's not because I'm mean; it's because I want to give you life. What area in your life? What has God taken? What area in your life? that is something good, that has been corrupted like the temple, what would God speak in? If he was to walk into your life right now, what would he call out? What would he flip a table over? Okay? So that's the first thing that Jesus is doing. The second thing that he's doing is that he is countering false expectations. Okay? And uh, just to back up on this, I need to explain this a minute. Uh, When I read the crucifixion story, so the the story of Jesus' last week all the way to resurrection, I'm really confused by the story. Because in one minute on Sunday, they are welcoming him in with a huge amount of fanfare. But by Friday, Pilate crucifies Jesus because he's afraid the city is going to riot over him. So why the flip? Why are they so eager to turn on Jesus so quickly? I've always struggled with this, and, and I've really like, what is going on? And then I realized it's because Jesus isn't mating their expectations of a Savior. You see, here's the thing that you and I need to understand. When you read the story of Jesus, what they're looking for in the Messiah is a political Messiah. They are looking for someone not to ride into the dark on a donkey. They are looking for someone to walk in on a horse with an army and overthrow the Roman Empire. That is what the people expected of the Jewish Messiah. And if today you are wondering why it is that the people of Israel do not accept Jesus as Messiah, it's still because of that expectation. I was uh, listening to something that came across my Facebook feed, it was real, about this apologist who was arguing with Ben Shapiro about the validity of Jesus Christ and whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. I want you to listen to uh, Ben Shapiro's rejection of why he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. To deliver him over to the Roman authorities by slandering him as a pretender to be king of the Jews and therefore... (laughs) A political figure who could be tried for treason and sedition and crucified. So, from the Jewish perspective, the, this this narrative has some some holes in sort of Jewish philosophy. Uh, the the narrative begins with the idea that Jesus appears in front of the Sanhedrin and then claims to be the Messiah. Well, there's nothing actual criminally in in any of the tractates that say that if you declare yourself the Messiah, this is actually right. a punishment, a punishable offense. Even right. that, there are there are many Jews, including Bar Kokhba, who have declared themselves messianic figures. The, the real gap here is that in the Gospels, Jesus' vision of him Messiah is completely different from the prior vision of what the Jewish Messiah is, and is actually outside the scope of how Jews describe the Messiah, or really have ever described the Messiah. The Messiah in Judaism has always been a political figure who is destined to do certain things, restoring the kingdom of Israel, uh, maintaining control of that kingdom, uh, bringing more Jews back to Israel. All of these things are considered sort of political things that the Messiah does. But the idea of the Messiah as embodiment of God is something that's foreign to Jewish religious Mm -hmm. philosophy going all the way back to the beginning. So even, Did you hear that? Like. So the objection about Jesus being the Messiah they're looking for is the fact that he's not meeting their expectations of a political Messiah. That is one of the, object, one of the resistance points today, and it would have been a resistance point back then too. Jesus is not acting like the Messiah that they wanted him to be. And so here he is, and he walks in the first day on Sunday. Yeah, Jesus, you're awesome. You're going to be amazing. You're the Messiah Woo, woo, Jesus, everyone's got the signs. And then Monday he walks into the temple, clears the temple, and everyone goes, this isn't the Messiah the way that we expected that Jesus would want. Uh, the Messiah would win. <clears throat> and you know why we are guilty of that today? The reality is, is sometimes Jesus isn't who we want him to be. Like Jesus, if I thought like if I took the Dave Ramsey course, You'd figure out all my financial problems. I thought if I did all these things that you asked me to in my marriage, it would be fine. I thought you would, if I prayed enough and and fasted enough, everyone would be healed. Man, I was wanting you to ride in on a Jerusalem and a horse. I wanted you to say, I, I, I didn't want you to flip tables. I wanted you to come in and flip the Roman Empire. Okay? Jesus is define the expectation of what the Savior is. Okay, and here's what I think is so important for you and I to pick up in the story is as the Jewish people are becoming more and more disillusioned with the fact that Jesus is not the Savior they expect him to be, they get angry and turn tail and say, "Let's hand him over. To, let's hand him over to Rome." Here's where it comes down for you and I. Are you ang- have you ever been angry at God because he has not saved you the way that he hoped he would? Here's the cool thing about Jesus you can't control him, right? You, have, you and I have this expectation of how we should think he work and how we think he should be, and he comes in and he just busts out that and says, this is the way that I'm going to save you. And you know what's really cool about that? Jesus' version of a Savior is better than your expectations of him being a Savior. Yeah. Amen? Amen? Amen. And lastly, and I think this is one I want to harp on a little bit, is that Jesus came and religion. When I was in Vancouver, I I told you that my family lived in the core of Vancouver. One of the places that we moved to was North Vancouver. And North Vancouver, it's north of Vancouver, that's why it's called North, right? (laughs) Um, But it's that part of Vancouver that I think is the most beautiful because it's where the, it's where the uh, rainforest meets the city kind of thing. And you have this beautiful landscape. And I remember when I, was, when I was a young kid, about five years old, I could look out in my backyard and I could see the mountain. And I don't know if you've ever driven uh, to Banff before and looked at the mountains and say, man, those mountains are really close, but really they're a couple hours away, right? In my mind, the mountain that I was looking at was no more than a two-minute walk. And it was so elevated all the time that there was a cloud cover that covered the top of the mountain. And here's what I did as a kid. I don't know why I did this, but I thought, God is up that mountain. And if I run up that mountain, I'm going to find God. And so like at five years old, I got in so much trouble for this. I took off (laughs) and ran up the mountain only to realize that I was nowhere near close. Man, my parents were so mad, right? Here's where I'm getting with this, okay? A lot of the times when uh, there's a pushback against Christianity, a lot of people will say, I don't like the exclusivity of Christianity. Meaning, I don't like the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to be saved, the only way to fear whole life. But here's what's so beautiful about Jesus and the temple thing. Okay, A lot of religions put Jesus at the top of the mountain. Like God's at the top of the mountain and we got to work our way up to get to him. We got to do all these good things. We got to do all these rituals and all these works. Christianity comes along and said, Jesus came down to the mountain for us. Okay. And when he's at the temple, he's, here's what I think you need to understand is that he's coming to shut it down. He's coming to speak against the religiousness and say, you don't have to do that to get to me. I'm here, I'm something better. When I was, uh, when, when Liz and I, uh, when Liz was pregnant, I, I wasn't pregnant, but when Liz was pregnant with James, we did the ultrasound thing. You guys remember that? If you had a kid, you would go get the ultrasound. Like, oh, that's cute. But there was this thing. I don't, did we do that? I think we did do this. Um, it's like the 3D ultrasound. Have you guys seen that? where you go in, you pay extra money, it's a rip off, but uh, you go in and you have a little like 3D ultrasound of your kid and they give you a little DVD and there's baby Einstein music playing and all that kind of thing. And so we got that DVD and we would go home and we would play it and we would watch it, right? And then a few months later, James was born. How weird would it be if I watched the ultrasound and ignored the real thing, right? It'd be really weird. It's like James would be like, hey, Dad, come play with me. Yeah, yeah, get out of here. Let's look at this video, right? But that's exactly what's going on here in the temple, right? Is that the temple is just an image, and Jesus is the real thing, okay? So that's what he's doing. He's speaking out against the sin of corruption. He's defying people's expectations of what the Savior is, and he's coming down to shut down the religion, okay? Which leads me to the why, why is Jesus doing it, right? Well, first, before I tell you why he's doing it, let me tell you what he's not doing. Jesus is not cleansing the temple, okay? He's not. He's not purifying it. He's not sanitizing it. He's not cleaning it. He's not doing any of that. I don't know if you have your Bibles open, but if you look at your Bibles, mine has... Mine's an ESV, that's what I usually read out of. And if you notice in your Bibles, there are headings. Here, 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 and here. I I think most of us know that those headings are not actually in the actual Bible. They are put there by the Bible translators in order to help you understand what you're reading. Okay. And in most cases, they're very helpful, but in this case, they're not. Because the one that says here... The one that, in mine, it says that Jesus cleansed the temple. Jesus isn't here to cleanse the temple. Okay? How do I know that? Two reasons. Number one, if Jesus' purposes was to clear the temple, it didn't work. Or purify the temple, it didn't work. Because I guarantee you, if you are hard, hard enough to make greed on the religiousness of the temple, you're going after all those sheep that Jesus left over. Okay? And you are setting it back up again the moment that Jesus leaves. Furthermore, just a couple days after Jesus does this, the disciples are walking with Jesus. And in Matthew 24, verse 2, the disciples are like, Look how beautiful the temple is. And this is what Jesus' response he says, But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, they will not be left there, not one stone upon another. That will be thrown down. Jesus knows that the temple will be destroyed. Okay? So why would he cleanse it if he knows that he's not, if it's not going to be there? It doesn't make any sense. Here's what I need you to understand, and this is the, what, I, what I'm going to leave us with today, is that Jesus is not clearing the temple. He's overturning the temple. you and I need to understand something very peculiar about the Jewish temple, all right? And let's see if I can illustrate this in the time allotted Who's American? Do we have any Americans here? All right, Joe, I'm gonna pick on you, (laughs) okay. When I think about the ideas of life, liberty, and freedom, I think of the United States, would that be fair to say? Okay, what architectural buildings do you associate with those ideas? Anything in Washington, D.C.? Yep. Here's what you need to understand about the temple. What those buildings represent for our ideas of peace, liberty, and freedom, and the importance that those buildings are, the temple represented that even more. It was the centerpiece of Jewish identity. And it represented two key ideas. The forgiveness of sins In God's presence on earth, okay? It was everything to them. That's why they mourn it. That's why they keep rebuilding it time and time and time again. But here's the whole crux of the story is that Jesus comes in and he realizes that the building has become corrupted. And so Jesus isn't purifying it. He's replacing it with something better. What is that better? It's himself. So every time that Jesus forgives somebody in his ministry, he's going to war against the temple. He's saying, listen, I'm here. I'm something better. You don't have to, you don't even have to hold on to this anymore. Jesus Himself is better than the religion. He's better than the corruption. He's better than your expectations of what you think he is. He's better than the religiousness. Jesus is cleansing or clearing the temple because he's ending the temple. You and I do not need the temple in order to reach God. We can find Him. You don't have to go through all the religious hoops. Right? You don't have to hold on to your corruption. You don't even have to hold on to your perceived idea of how he thinks he will save you. He's got a better one. and So that's the point of the story. Is that Jesus is doing away with the temple to give us something better. So the question I have for us today is, are you living like that? Or are you going to hold on to your religiousness, to your false expectations of what you think Jesus should be, or to your sin, Jesus is coming to say, "I'm here and I'm better. I've got the way to forgive sins. I'm the better way to forgive sins, and I am the better way to experience Christ pre- or God's presence on earth." So I want to leave you with that as we get into Easter. Let's call Corey up and we'll do one more song to close out.